say you've gone too far, sir. And I say you've gone not far enough. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. And I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. As the Civil War ends, a new chapter begins for both Texas and the United States. Today we're discussing Reconstruction in Texas. But first, who's your favorite defunct Texas sports team? I like the basketball team, the Dallas Chaparrales, that predated the Dallas Mavericks. I'm a big fan of the Houston Gamblers of the defunct USFL in the 1980s. And I love the Houston Oilers. Love you, Blue. Before we start talking about the history of Reconstruction in Texas, we have to remember that this time period is sensitive, just like the Civil War, for some of the subject matter. And just like when we talked about the Indians in Texas, we're going to use some terms that are appropriate for the time, maybe not so much in the vernacular today, but they're appropriate for the context of what we're discussing. We won't be necessarily politically correct, neither will we be offensive. We're somewhere in the middle. As we start to talk about Reconstruction in Texas... Let's take a moment to step back and just review what we learned when we were going to school. Maybe I should have paid better attention, but really all I remember about Reconstruction and from school was the word carpetbaggers. <laughs> carpetbaggers, yeah. Well, for me, I just remember in school that both in discussions of the Civil War and Reconstruction, my teachers tended to put us in the, you know, as, well, we were part of of the South, but we weren't part of the bad South. And we were really penalized under Reconstruction, whereas the other parts of the South deserved it. But we were sort of just innocent bystanders in the Civil War conflict and not really all that greatly involved. That sounds incredibly accurate. Yeah, that is a very interesting perspective. It's it's a wrong perspective, but it's a very interesting perspective. If only it were true. Yeah, if only it were true. Well, so what I was, what I learned is gener- was generally the idea of after the Civil War, the Yankee carpetbaggers came in and they used the freed slaves to put the Republicans in power, and these governments were corrupt and things were bad in Texas until uh, the you know the Democrats took over and and made things better. So. Uh, that was what I learned in Reconstruction, and generally that's still what's kind of taught today. As we know from our episode on the Civil War, Texas was largely untouched by the war outside of a few small battles on the Gulf Coast. The population grew due to refugees moving to Texas, and the economy remained strong due to the high price of cotton and the continued trade through Mexico, which bypassed the Union blockade. Now, imported goods were expensive, but they weren't as hard to get as elsewhere in the South, and for the most part, life was the same in 1865 as it had been in 1860. Large numbers of Texans did serve in the Confederate military back East, and some also served in the Union military. The draft was as unpopular in Texas as it was everywhere else in the Confederacy, so So a lot of the men uh, did flee to the unsettled and the lawless areas out in the frontier and in the thickets to avoid the the draft, as did deserters and outlaws. There was a lot of violence against Unionists and immigrant groups in the state who were viewed as Unionists throughout the war. The state was broke, and there was never enough troops to defend the frontier from the Indians, but this really wasn't very much different from before secession. But in the spring of 1865, when the war back east was clearly lost, civil authority collapsed and 
things were just falling apart in Texas, literally. There was partisan fighting, desertion, and general lawlessness throughout the state. Rioters attacked the state treasury and stole $17,000 worth of gold, and the government pretty much ceased to function. Despite minor fighting continuing in the Rio Grande Valley, most of the Confederate troops were on the verge of mutiny or just walking out and leaving. On June 2nd, General Edmund Kirby Smith surrendered his command, and on June 19th, federal forces arrived in Galveston to begin the occupation and declare the slaves emancipated. This was the last place in the United States where this was to be done. The initial period of federal occupation was chaotic and confusing in Texas. President Lincoln had appointed a Texas Unionist politician named Andrew Jackson Hamilton as military governor of occupied Texas, that is, if any of the Norse invasion schemes had ever succeeded. After the surrender of Confederate forces, President Andrew Johnson appointed Hamilton provisional governor of Texas and ordered him to reestablish civilian authority over the state and begin the reconstruction process. So let's take a moment to talk about what Reconstruction actually was. Reconstruction was the process of physically rebuilding and restoring the economies and infrastructure of the southern states that had seceded and had been defeated, but also of politically restoring them to the Union. Now, by 1863, this was very clearly, in the North's viewpoint, it also included the emancipation of the slaves in the Confederacy. Lincoln began the Reconstruction in Louisiana, Arkansas, and Tennessee, uh, which by 1865 were mostly under Union control. His initial plan had been to grant amnesty to rebels who swore oaths of loyalty to the Union, and he wanted to tie freedmen to the plantations for a year uh, with pay, and he required 10% of the state's voters to swear the loyalty oath in order to readmit the state into the Union. The states were also required to abolish slavery in the new constitutions. Lincoln's plan was controversial, and there was a lot of opposition from both radical Republicans who wanted harsher measures against the South and pro-Southern Democrats who thought that these measures went too far. I'd say you've gone too far! Sir. And I say you've gone not far enough. Now, Lincoln's murder shortly after the Confederate surrender left his vice president, Tennessee Unionist Andrew Johnson, the new president and responsible for directing the restoration of the South. Johnson initially held a hardline position about punishing secessionists, but very quickly he seems to have chosen to adhere strictly to what he considered to be Lincoln's 10% plan, with only the addition of the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which constitutionally banned slavery to the requirements for restoration. Under what became known as presidential reconstruction, all but the very highest Confederate officials were pardoned with the barest oath of loyalty, and civilian governments were quickly restored in all the southern states. As events unfolded in the southern states, presidential reconstruction would become more and more unpopular in the northern states and would very quickly bring Johnson into conflict with radical Republicans. This was the political environment that Andrew Hamilton found himself in, and as he traveled to Texas, things in the state had gone from bad to worse. Lawlessness continued to abound because nobody knew who was really in charge. Most of the federal troops were either deployed to the frontier or to the border, and many communities did not see a federal presence. The Freedmen's Bureau, which was intended to supervise and protect the affairs of freed slaves, did not arrive in Texas until September 1865. The question of the now freed labor force was the biggest issue facing the state. The cotton planters still needed the black workers to ensure that the summer crop was cultivated. Cotton prices had gone down, but they were still much higher than pre-war levels, and hopes were high for the 1865 crop. To ensure that they still had the previously free labor they needed, planters and farmers either had to sign freedmen to highly restrictive and controlling, yet high-paying contracts, or let the freedmen work the land for a share of the crop. Unfortunately, it was not to be the fairest of solutions in execution, and in some isolated areas of the state, slaveholders even refused to relinquish their slaves. 
To solve the problem of the lawlessness, Hamilton reformed the local and state government structure. With unionists where he could, and with, and with modern Confederates, if they would swear a simple loyalty oath that the swearer had essentially accepted the results of the war. He issued a call to Texans to swear the loyalty oath, to ratify the new state constitution, ratify the 13th Amendment, which formally freed the slaves, and hold elections for a new permanent government. Now, according to historian Carl Moneyhon, in his book Texas After the Civil War, The Struggle for Reconstruction, Hamilton's actions, quote, set Texas on a course that would have produced significant changes. Now, Hamilton considered minimum civil rights for freedmen to be essential for ensuring their economic future, and from a practical level, he knew that in the long term, since Republicans controlled Congress, Congress, especially the radical ones, Texas's admission to the Union would depend on giving some level of rights and protection to the freed slaves. And unfortunately, though, by and large, the Texas political establishment was just not interested at all in Hamilton's vision for the future of the state. In January of 1866, opponents of Hamilton and the Unionists, many of whom had been supporters of the secession and the Confederacy, which also included many Confederate veterans, successfully won the special election for delegates to the Constitutional Convention. Now, most of the delegates generally represented the pre-war and wartime political establishment, and only a few, including Edmund J. Davis, were what could be considered quote-unquote radical Unionists. Hamilton opened the convention with a plea that half-measures that did not fully accept the result of the war and its consequences, i.e. emancipation and citizenship for freed slaves, would delay Texas' acceptance back into the Union by Congress. The former secessionists and modern Unionists quickly showed that they opposed Hamilton's stance on giving civil liberties and protections to the freed slaves. Blacks were not allowed to vote and were banned from public office. In the general election that June, James Throckmorton, who had voted against secession but had stayed in Texas and helped patrol the frontier, was elected governor. The Constitution of 1866 was ratified, and secessionists and former Confederates dominated the legislature as well as local governments. At the time in the U.S. history, the state legislature selected the state's U.S. senators, and they chose Orrin Roberts, who had chaired Texas' secession convention, and former interim Republic of Texas President David G. Burnett, also an ardent secessionist, to go to Washington. The legislature refused to ratify the 13th and 14th Amendments, which gave citizenship and legal protections to the former slaves and very quickly enacted strict black codes to control and regulate freedmen's lives, some of them taking away rights that freedmen prior to the Civil War had held, such as the right to serve in the militia, carry guns, and homestead. This would not go over well with the Republicans in Washington and would have severe implications both at home and in the North. These implications would and, they, and already were resulting in tremendous violence and terror against blacks, uh, freed slaves, uh, unionists, and the Freedmen's Bureau. Now, the Freedmen's Bureau was formed to give aid and assistance to freed slaves in the Reconstructing South. They quickly became vilified by the pro-Southern press and politicians as troublemakers and profiteers who had come to the South with their belongings in a carpet bag to manipulate blacks, to ensure Yankee political dominance, to steal from honest Southerners, and to, quote, keep the Negro in idleness at the expense of the white man. And now the truth was the Bureau was largely very conservative in its mission, and mostly it consisted of teachers, ministers, doctors, and nurses. They built schools and hospitals, and they tried to pressure the freed slaves to stay where they were and to work with planners and farmers to negotiate fair contracts. But their very presence seemed to only provoke more and more opposition from many in Texas. Matters were not helped when there were five consecutive years of terrible cotton harvests. 
1865, the market collapsed as prices fell back to pre-war levels. Of course, the cost of labor contracts was blamed. The next four years, bad weather and cotton worm infestations devastated crops and cost farmers and planters millions of dollars. In every case, the freed workers and the contract and sharecropping system were blamed. Critics insisted that blacks were too lazy and intransigent to be trusted to be good workers as free men, and that the carpetbaggers who advised them made things worse. This led to stricter laws on the freedmen, such as allowing employers to use physical punishment on black workers as a motivator without protections for those workers. Landowners commonly avoided paying contract wages or shares by simply canceling the contract or evicting tenants after the crop was harvested without pay. Even more disturbing was the rise of organized gang activity against freedmen, especially in the northern counties. Many of these had started out as outlaw desperados who supposedly had been fighting Union forces in the occupied territories, but really just preyed on anyone and everyone. In 1866, planters in Bowie, Red River, Hunt, Van Zant, Jefferson, and other counties in the northeastern corner of Texas from Dallas to Texarkana hired notorious outlaws like Cullen Baker and Ben Biggerstaff as enforcers to intimidate and harass freedmen and to punish those who complained. Blacks in these counties were beaten, driven from their homes, and those who resisted or tried to become politically active were murdered. Judge Albert H. Latimer, a unionist from Red River County, described the situation when he wrote, quote, that never in the days of slavery has there ever been known the wrong, the outrage, the oppression that now exists in all of the northeastern counties of Texas towards the poor Negroes. More downtrodden and brutally treated, blacks have no rights whatsoever that are respected, end quote. In addition, the same violence was directed at representatives of the Freedmen's Bureau and Unionists. Freedmen's Bureau Inspector William H. Sinclair reported that the situation was pandemonium itself. In addition to the gangs of desperados, was the rise across the South and in Texas of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, this organization had started in Tennessee in 1866 as a social fraternity of Confederate veterans, but it quickly evolved into a violent vigilante group out to oppose Reconstruction and to ensure white supremacy over the freed slaves. The Klan first reached Texas in 1867 and 1868, but it wasn't organized as it was elsewhere. It was often confused with other similar organizations like the Knights of the White Camilla, uh, the Knights of the Rising Sun, and even the pro-slavery pre-war Knights of the Golden Circle. Now, while the Desperados definitively targeted blacks and their allies, they were really just outlaws and they weren't purely political in nature. The Klan was entirely political and, and it was that was due to its semi-secret nature, which attracted membership from all social classes. Yeah, they were supposed to be secret and wearing all these hoods, so nobody knows who they are. But they all knew who everybody was in the meetings anyway. Right. And this dichotomy is lambasted to great effect in uh, Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. So their activity, it was directly tied into the political turmoil in Texas, and it seemed to escalate whenever there's any type of voting or election activity. Now, this political turmoil and volatility would result in open and bloody conflict throughout the state between anti-freedmen outlaws, and often the Klan and other secret groups, and the state police and Texas Unionists, many of whom formed Union League clubs to help the Freedmen's Bureau and the Occupation Army in trying to help the freed slaves. Southerners who supported Republicans and the freedmen, even if they had served in the Confederate Army, were called scallywags, and they were as vilified as much as the carpetbaggers. These conflicts are usually referred to today as feuds, and while they often did involve families and extended families fighting each other, they were nothing short of vicious and bloody warfare between competing factions. Many historians, including historian James Smallwood, have called the 
called this the War of Reconstruction. One of the earliest feuds on record is the early Halsey feud in Bell County. This was between Austin and Waco in Central Texas. The main participants were John Early, a Unionist, on one side, and Samuel Halsey, a former Confederate, on the other. The origin of the feud was personal between Early and Halsey, but the feud between their gangs of supporters got wrapped up in, or were perhaps fueled by, the general violence against blacks in the Freedmen's Bureau from 1865 to 18. 1969. Perhaps 14 people were killed as a direct result of this feud, but it and other conflicts in Bell County resulted in the decline of its black population from 21% in 1865 to around only 10% in 1870. The sudden Taylor feud began in 1868 in DeWitt County, east of Austin, and may be the most violent conflict during the period. It involved the sons and brothers of Creed Taylor on one side, and the Texas State Police and rancher William Sutton and his family and friends on the other. It also involved outlaw John Wesley Hardin, Texas Ranger Captain Leander H. McNelly, and the Indianola Hurricane of 1878. But that's for a future episode. Which side was the hurricane on? Now, the Lee-Peacock feud, which was also known as the Corners War in North Texas, is probably more typical of the conflict between anti-black reconstructed Confederates and Unionists in Texas. The Corners region is where four counties, Collin, Fannin, Grayson, and Hunt, all meet north of Dallas. We all live, actually, in Collin County. Now, these counties were farming communities, with Collin County, which is centered on the town of McKinney, having a large black population and heavy cotton production. However, in all of these counties, there was substantial support for the Union. Grayson and Collin County, echoing the stance of Collin County's leading citizen James Throckmorton, strongly voted against secession, Fannin County much more narrowly so, uh, while secession narrowly passed in Hunt County. Now, conflict between Unionists and pro-Confederate forces began even during the war itself, and it was made worse by outlaws and bushwhackers who made regular use of the dense thickets of the counties and they preyed on local citizens. Historian James Smallwood theorizes that what made diehard Confederates so aggressive in their dealings with Unionists and later freedmen in the Bureau was that they may have felt initially outnumbered by those opposed to secession, and so they had to act strongly to counter that. So we'll leave our story of Texas Reconstruction here, and we'll pick up in another episode where we'll continue the fascinating and tragic story of the Lee-Peacock War and the rise and fall of Republican Reconstruction in Texas. But I'd like to take just a few minutes for us to talk about where we started from what we knew when we first started in school to really looking at this first wave of Reconstruction and the violence that happened in Texas. Right. And I think the thing to note about this is that, you know, I mentioned that the part of Reconstruction was rebuilding the South, rebuilding the infrastructure, but they didn't have to do the physical rebuilding in Texas because Texas was barely touched by the war. So what makes the nature of Reconstruction in Texas really unique is that it it was entirely political and social. It was about rebuilding Texas's political structure and its social structure. Yeah, and I think that kind of feeds into what you were saying, Mike, where you were taught that Texas wasn't really involved in the Civil War, and so they got punished out of out of balance with the other states. And it's like, you can kind of see where that perspective comes from, because like Sean was saying, there wasn't a lot of fighting in Texas, so the residents of the state were probably felt a little like they didn't deserve as much of the, you know, the federals coming in and rearranging everything out from under them because, hey, we all were just living our lives here. Well, it's interesting because, you know, when I went to elementary school was not, you know, in 1870. It was during Ronald right. Reagan's first and second terms. Right. Uh, 
You know, it's just after Jimmy Carter. So I really thought we had this reconstruction thing behind us. What I find really interesting about this, though, is, and especially not just this story of, of reconstruction, but when we talked about the Civil War, and there's some future episodes and some past episodes we've talked about in this time frame, it's really shocking to me how spiteful the Democratic power base was in Texas and how prepared politicians and citizens were to let the state, they would rather the state burn than serve under any kind of tenant. And even these very modest proposals that were, you know, not liked by either side, you know, these these very well compromised and thought out solutions just were not going to be, it was just unacceptable to the citizens and to the politicians. And as I've been researching this and writing this episode, here's the interesting thing is that Smallwood describes this is the second civil war, this war war of reconstruction. And I think it's important to remember that while the main civil war didn't necessarily touch Texas as much as it did the rest of the South, this second civil war between citizens, this low level insurgency almost, really did start in Texas earlier. It started during the war. We saw it in Panama Maria and in, in talking about the Germans. Uh, the fighting between honest, real unionists, even still in Texas, and those still the Confederates. And so this conflict was brewing already. And as you can see, it's really starting here. But in the next episode, we're going to see where it just it just gets bad. And it gets, you know, thinks, we think things are bad right now. But as we go into 1867, 1868, 1870, it gets worse and worse. So that's really what we want to look forward to in not you know, I wouldn't anticipate in this next episode is this second civil war is going on and the results are going to be very different than the big American civil war. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainsaple.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. And I'm at Mac Sean with two N's. And I am Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. Thank you.